Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. On today's episode, I talk with Scott Ryder, the former Ohioan now living in South Carolina, who's living with Parkinson's disease. In the conversation, which we recorded in December at the WCBE studios, Scott offers some great insight into life with Parkinson's, the state of supports for people in his and similar positions, and misunderstandings about Parkinson's itself. As always, I learn a lot from our guests, and getting to meet inspiring people like Scott make this work especially meaningful to me. Just a reminder, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the podcast, and please consider becoming a Patreon, giving us a rating in your podcast app, and if you can, share this episode with others that you think might benefit from it. Before turning to my conversation, though, it's time for Things You Need to Know, brought to you in collaboration with the Center for Community Solutions. It's that most exciting time of every other year in Ohio. It's state budget time. And there are some important steps you should take if you want to advocate for policies or funding. It's important that you refamiliarize yourself with the state budget process and timeline. Get to know the players. Put together a list of all the staff for legislators on the budget writing committees. Introduce yourself via email or phone. And keep in mind that it's often staff who decide who gets the valuable 15-minute one-on-one with a legislator. Too many people underestimate the importance and power of staffers. Be especially clear about what you want policymakers to do. And once you get that clarity, it's going to be important to develop a media strategy. Pull together a list of key reporter emails so you can update them quickly on developments on your issue. And finally, and I say this as an academic and podcaster who works largely alone, don't work alone. Identify partner organizations who share your policy goals and who are in key legislative districts. Organize a day at the Statehouse where you meet with key legislators together. Speaking of budgets, the huge federal omnibus bill passed in late December invests at least $10 billion into behavioral health in fiscal 2023. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Support for certified community behavioral health clinics, telehealth, Medicare and Medicaid improvements, and more. Funding's also going to bolster maternal and pediatric mental health and opioid response funds. The bill also removes a provision that allowed non-federal government entities like states, cities, school districts, and other public systems to dodge requirements that put mental health on par with physical health, while adding coverage for intensive outpatient mental health programs and care provided by marriage and family therapists and mental health counselors. This is a really meaningful expansion of access for Medicare beneficiaries. Finally, adding heft to something we've talked about a great deal on this show, the bill provides 12 months of coverage for children and new mothers previously eligible for Medicaid. Prognosis Ohio listeners will remember that until last year, Ohio only offered 60 days of postpartum coverage. Medicaid is the single largest payer of mental health services in the nation, and enrollment has increased by about 26% over pre-pandemic levels to about 90 million adults and children. The health plan covers about 27% of the American population. Let me take the liberty of reading you a key passage from a recent article in the New York Times, which notes that, quote, teen births have fallen by more than three quarters in the last three decades, a change of such improbable magnitude that experts struggle to fully explain it. Does cutting teen births reduce child poverty or does cutting child poverty reduce teen births? One theory holds that reducing teen births lowers child poverty by allowing women to finish school, start careers and form mature relationships, raising their income before they raise children. Another says progress runs the other way. Cutting child poverty reduces teen birth, since teenagers who see opportunity have motives to avoid getting pregnant. 
Teen births have fallen by 77% since 1991, and among young teens, the decline is even greater, 85%. The section ends by noting, today, just 6% of 15-year-old girls become teen mothers. You can read the article at NewYorkTimes.com. Of course, we're going to be linking to it in our show notes at prognosisohio.com. Okay, now to my conversation with Scott Ryder. Thanks so much for being at the WCB studios and taking some time to talk with Prognosis Ohio. Dan, thanks for the opportunity to be here. There are so many technical questions we probably want to get to today, policy, things like that. But I want to start with you. I want to ask you to talk with us a little bit about the day you learned that you had Parkinson's and what jumped into your mind? What were the first thoughts you had in terms of what that meant for your life and things that you now had to think about that you didn't have to think about before the moment you got that news? Um, Dan, there are certain things that happen in one's life that are sort of etched in your mind forever. Milestones, we might say, like the birth of a child. And um, it's terrible for me to compare the date I was learned that I had Parkinson's with the birth of a child because um, one's very positive and one's very negative. But I will never forget the day the physician said that I had Parkinson's disease. And I think that probably the first thing I thought is that my life is over. And that's really common. If you talk to people, the first thing they think, I'm done. I'm toast. I'm not going to be able to work anymore. And those things crossed my mind. How am I going to take care of my family financially? And so is my family going to be able to continue the quality of life that we've always experienced? What's my life going to look like? And of course, I thought of Michael J. Fox, and I think... Most people think of um, his involuntary movement they see. And then I learned that that really wasn't Parkinson's. That was a side effect of the medication. So it took some time to put it all together. But Dan, I think another important point is um, I had always been the healthiest individual. Biked, I ran. Um, I ran track at the Ohio State University. was an All-American twice. And I think there's an irony to that because I once was pretty darn fast. And Parkinson's makes you really slow slow as a turtle. So it seemed like almost unfair. How could a guy that had done everything right, consume the right foods, lived a healthy lifestyle, always had one day find out he has Parkinson's disease? You know, there's a, a book uh, by Susan Sontag that I always share with students. It's about Ill- It's called Illness as Metaphor. And the main argument she makes in that book, which is now a little bit old, she talks about tuberculosis and HIV AIDS and, and cancer is that we ascribe meaning to disease, but it's really unhelpful. Like, you know, just because you got a diagnosis, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong, right? But we do this all the time, and it seems like you almost went through a question like that, the way you're narrating your your, your experience. Um, I did, and there's. I think everybody processes it differently. I tend to be a pretty positive-thinking person, which I think has been a real help, a blessing, Um so I that self-pity time or how could this happen to me? I didn't deserve this. was pretty short-lived, and I think that has been a very healthy thing for me. You're one of these extraordinary people who has taken your life experience and the journey of your disease and turned it into a much bigger project in a way. And you've had a chance to look at the national picture a bit. You know, you came from, you live in South Carolina now, and you're, you know, you're, you're an Ohioan. Is that okay to call you an Ohioan? I'm a Buckeye. Okay, good. I don't want to, you know, cross any lines here. No worries. Uh, how do you think about that 
reality you've had of living in Ohio and living in South Carolina. What does the, the national picture look like? Like, what does it mean to be in Ohio or in South Carolina? Is it a different experience with Parkinson's? Um, I would say it depends where you live in each state, and I would put, um, I would say Ohio, for the most part, would be a, a little ahead of the game compared to South Carolina. Um, a lot of South Carolina is very rural, even compared to Ohio. Um, South Carolina, interestingly, um, has fewer people that have Parkinson's, but also has a lesser population. So if you look at the national scene, um, just to put it in perspective, the very worst state or the state that has the highest incidence of Parkinson's, when I say that per 10,000 of population, would be Vermont, about 9.9%. The very best state are some of the southern states, which are around 5.5%. Ohio is on the heavier end, closer to about 9% per 10,000. To what do you owe those differences? Do you have a, a sense of why that is? Well, I think I should probably do this disclaimer and make sure that everybody knows um, there's no MD or PhD behind my name. Uh, my experiences are gained from um, life experiences and studying on my own, but um, it's pretty clear it's environmental. And um, there are a number of things, pesticides, things used in dry cleanings, but um, mostly chemicals that are used in the outdoors that are proven to have a great impact or leading to causing Parkinson's disease, I should say. You, know, you still come back to Ohio to receive your, your care, or most of your care. Why, why is that? I do. Um, I learned early on that your relationship with the person that's taking care of you as it relates to Parkinson's is a lifetime relationship. And I didn't want to interrupt that because um, my physician, Dr. Malone, was knows me from the beginning. And um, there's not a whole... She's a, what's called a movement disorder specialist. And there's not a whole lot of movement disorder specialists across the nation, let alone in South Carolina or Ohio, really. And um, it's just important to me to maintain that relationship. It's not because there aren't movement disorder specialists in South Carolina, but there are. But my movement disorder specialist is in Columbus, Ohio, and as long as I'm able to, that's who I want to maintain that relationship with. What kind of work do uh, movement disorder specialists do with you? What, what does that care look like? Well, they're ne- a new movement disorder specialist is a neurologist that's had a years, two extra years of training generally. And um, that training relates specifically to movement disorders of which Parkinson's would be considered the largest movement disorder. And so um, they're just, they're the most up-to-date on the latest treatments, the latest medications, the latest developments related to Parkinson's disease. And Parkinson's disease is a very complicated disease. I've talked to some of the, the top neurologists in the world, and they'll tell you it's it's baffling. The brain is a baffling yeah. place um, in our body. And uh, so I want to see the person that has the highest level of expertise. It does strike me, you know, we have all these experts across the country, and we've come so far with medical science. And of course, you know, so... You know, I'm a health policy professor. I'm not a clinician or, or a, a, a basic scientist or a brain scientist, certainly. But it strikes me from what I've understood that we still know just a fraction of what we need to know about the brain. I think you're really right. Like there, there are some areas, there are some parts of the body that we've really understood. But when I talk to people about what we know about the brain, it seems like we're really just grasping at straws despite just massive investments in trying to understand. And it seems like Parkinson's and other neurological diseases are kind of a function of that in terms of where we are with understanding what causes it and what to do about it. I think you're right, Dan. I think the best example of that, 
and I've shared this with many people, if I was diagnosed with Parkinson's 35 years ago, the physician would have prescribed a drug called carbidopa, levodopa. If I was diagnosed today, carbidopa, levodopa. And that's not to be um, a naysayer or to all the people that are doing research trying to find a cure because they are out there doing that. But I think that speaks to um, how far we haven't come. On this show, we talk a lot about the ways in which our, our physical infrastructure just isn't up to snuff and, and can't meet our healthcare needs. Actually, the New York Times just uh, put out some really great reporting just this week showing how different neighborhoods produce very different kinds of challenges for people with regard to health. A lot of it related to climate change, but also other questions such as, can you, know, can you age in place where you live? Do, are you going to have to move to go somewhere else that's more accessible? Um, what does the housing stock look like? What are the sidewalks like? Like all these very basic questions. And, and we do talk on the show about what, it, what people need to age in place. I'm guessing this has been a consideration that you and other people with Parkinson's have as you start planning for your life for the next months and years. What have you learned about kind of being in physical space as a person with Parkinson's? I've learned a lot, and I've learned a lot very recently. I was involved in, um, when I say the construction, not literally the construction, but sort of advising for a house that we built in the neighborhood that I live in in South Carolina that could serve as a model across the nation, including Ohio, and that's one of our goals. And I'm, the common term is adaptive or universal housing. And I like to say that there's different levels of that. So um, we built a house in our neighborhood that is adaptive specifically to for somebody with Parkinson's disease. And there's so many things to consider, um, you know, from handrails to the height of commodes to how you turn the lights on. Um, the planning is just, it's exciting because there's so much opportunity. But I would tell anybody, especially if they're considering building a new home, there are so many things they should plan for in advance. Think about putting um, blocks behind the drywall between the studs for future handrails. Yeah. Just simple things. You know, we're going to be providing links to some of what you've shared with me. I mean, it re is really interesting and really important to start thinking about, you know, and, and not only for people with Parkinson's, just in general. I mean, no, whether it's Parkinson's or something else, life is going to bring challenges. And the more we can think about the, the physical environments we live in earlier, the better. It seems like we went through a, a stage of, of home design in this country where nobody thought about health at all. And now, especially with life expectancy increasing, we have to think about that if we actually want to live well, not just live long. You know, you're absolutely right. People clearly want to be able to stay in their home I'm 63 years old, and like many of my peers, I've experienced the situation with my parents and my in-laws who've probably stayed in their home too long. But if we can create an environment that's safe and designed specifically to their limitations or their needs, then they can age in place, which I don't think um, there's anybody that doesn't want to age in place. And from an economic standpoint, um, personally and to our economy in general, it's a big deal. What are some things you've learned that people get wrong about Parkinson's disease? Like, what, what are some of the myths or the, the misinformation that's out there? Now, one of the things I think that people maybe don't understand about Parkinson's disease is that it's so much more than just an involuntary tremor, what they see on the outside of a person. There's so many things that it impacts inside the body. And I'd like to remind people that 
Parkinson's at the most basic level is just a lack of enough dopamine. And dopamine does a couple things that are important. It allows one to move and it creates a sense of well-being. So depression is common amongst people with Parkinson's. This is not very fun to think about, but constipation is a problem with people with Parkinson's. And I could go on and on. Swallowing is a problem with people with Parkinson's. Um, Excessive saliva is a problem with people with Parkinson's. So it creates all kinds of issues that make people feel awkward socially and feel uh, not feel well physically as well that somebody else wouldn't know about because it's not visible to the human eye. Yeah, and, and you also talked with me a little bit about some of the things that happen to folks with Parkinson's in hospitals and the misunderstandings or the the ill-equipped nature of some of uh, of what hospitals are, are ready for to be able to meet the needs of people with Parkinson's. What's that about? I mean, what, what are some of those those yeah. considerations? Well, there have been a number of studies done, and this is sort of sta- just um, mind-boggling to consider, but the hospital can be one of the most dangerous places for a person to be with Parkinson's. And the reason being is, one of the reasons being is the timeliness of medication is crucial to living as good a quality life as possible. And hospitals aren't necessarily equipped to deliver medicine in a timely fashion. You have shift changes between the nurses and the physicians. Um, the pharmacies may not have the medication that's needed because it's very specialty medication. And um, they just really don't oftentimes have a good understanding. Keep in mind, they're there to help people with all kinds of problems. They're not specialists in Parkinson's. And so there have been many cases where somebody with Parkinson's has been in a hospital and they can't get out of bed because they haven't had their medication. Um, And I could go on and on. Yeah, and you've also talked about these aware and care kits. Can you just tell us about those? I mean, it's it's interesting. We talk about, you know, go bags. I mean, people... With different conditions, especially when they're expecting uh, to deliver a baby, right? They'll prepare to sure. go to the hospital. And I, and I know that there's a similar discussion uh, for folks with uh, Parkinson's disease. There is. A number of years ago, um, with the help of a f- um, physician who was a movement disorder specialist, the Parkinson's Foundation created what's called an aware and care kit or sometimes known as a hospital kit. I like to compare it to that advertisement years ago for some I don't product that said don't leave home without it, mm-hmm. and um, you would don't want to leave home without your aware and care kit because it's sort of your voice that, for you when you're in the hospital. And in that aware and care kit, there's a place to list the medications you take. There's this big word that I like to use called contraindication, so it tells you what medicines that you might take that clash, for lack of better words, with a medication they may want to administer in the hospital. There's some anesthesia that people with Parkinson's just can't have because of the medications. So it's an it's an effort to be your voice when you may not be well-equipped to speak for yourself and communicate to the staff what you have. Maybe you have DBS. Well, they may not know, and DBS is called deep brain stimulation surgery. Hmm. But the, the person administering care to you in the hospital, may, there's no real visible sign outwardly that you have DBS. You may have a Duopa pump, um, and they may not know much about that. So... It just makes the um, the whole hospital stay probably shorter than it would be otherwise and much healthier. You know, the policy person in me is also thinking as you're talking, this is yet another bit of evidence why we need a better national health care record system so that wherever you go, under whatever condition you arrive, they can pull up your records and know what you need and what you what medications you're on and, and your history. And we don't have that at all. Here you are, you're, you're traveling, you're back in Ohio, but you go around the country talking about Parkinson's disease. So that that's a consideration, making sure that wherever you end up for care, 
you can actually get them up the speed as fast as possible. It's true, Dan. And, you know, even um, at a more basic level, um, there's a possibility that law enforcement could look at you and think that you're under the influence of something. I wear a necklace around my neck that says I have a medical alert necklace that says I have Parkinson's disease. And in that aware and care kit, there's a card that you can present to law enforcement that says, I have Parkinson's disease, because it'd be real easy for them to draw some quick conclusions like, hey, this writer guy's under the influence of something. Right. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the bigger picture. And you alluded to this a little bit at the beginning. You know, m- most people, myself included, when they think of Parkinson's, think of Michael J. Fox and his, and his really impressive advocacy um, and his own journey with Parkinson's, which has been very public. And in a way, you know, the publicness of a disease can be very helpful, but it can also give people one picture of what a disease might be. It can also sort of shape the debate, maybe in unhelpful ways, in addition to helpful ways like raising money, things like that. I know there are also some criticisms out there about the kind of specific focus that the Fox Foundation has taken. In your view, what do we need to be focusing on uh, to really get at helping people with Parkinson's while also attending to this idea of finding a cure and the clinical side of things. Yeah, I think it's sort of like the three-legged stool. There's, in my view, this is my view uh, only, um, I I have no criticisms of the Fox Foundation. Uh, Their sole desire is to find a cure, which we need somebody to find a cure. And they receive more federal funding than anybody for that from the NIH to find a cure. But I think often what's left behind is the fact that, and I don't, again, mean to be a naysayer, I'm probably not going to see a cure in my lifetime. So quality of life today is what's most important to me. And I think there's organizations that do a really good job but maybe don't get as much attention as the Fox Foundation. Because let's face it, Michael J. Fox, that's an inspiring story. I'm grateful for everything he's done. He's an inspiring individual. But there's organizations like the Parkinson's Foundation which is just does an amazing job of providing that hospital kit we mentioned, the mm-hmm. aware and care kit, services and materials for free. They have a newly diagnosed kit that's just invaluable for somebody that's newly diagnosed. Then they're just doing an outstanding job, probably don't get the publicity the Fox Foundation does. And the downside to that means there's not as many people receiving that information as they could otherwise. And it seems like organizations like that are focused on helping people live today and to make their lives just a little bit easier, to uh, have a few more accommodations while, while, while we're waiting for that cure to come. I mean, we also talk about cancer and other diseases in this way. People need to live. They do. Um, quality of life today is, and I mean today, I tell people all the time, I don't look to tomorrow. The most important thing to me is this moment, really, that we're having right now. Because yeah. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. If you would have seen me two days ago, I went through the airport in a wheelchair. Today, I'm walking pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So each each day is its own day. Each day is a surprise, Dan. So what's next for you? You know, you talk about the importance of living today and focusing on today, but I also know you have plans. You know, you, you are... You, you have big plans. I mean, you're involved in lots of different projects. Um, Parkinson's Across America is, is this project that you're working on. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about it, but also it's wrapped up with travel. So I would love to get a sense of sort of what it's like with Parkinson's traveling and, and you know, how that is for you. I mean, that seems hard, but this is really important work to you too. 
At Parkinson's Across America is what um, I call a 3 a.m. moment. And we talked about things related to Parkinson's that you don't see. And one is um, most people with Parkinson's do not sleep well, um, have a lack of sleep, which creates all kinds of problems. And it's documented that you probably don't live as long if you have less sleep. You, your metabolism is messed up. So that's the whole story in its own. But I um, keep a notepad next to my bed, and I oftentimes wake up at 3 a.m., and I'll, I come up with ideas just related to Parkinson's. And I think that this is an important point. I decided early on that I could be a consumer or a contributor. And I'm not being critical of either. Some people are not made to be contributors. But there's people that have gone before me that have created all kinds of great tools and information. Um, and so I decided to be a creator, um, not just a consumer. And um, Parkinson's Across America is one of those 3 a.m. ideas. That's a documentary that we're filming and we're traveled from Miami, Florida, all the way to the West Coast, to Southern California, and we're capturing Parkinson's from all different angles, from innovators to people with Parkinson's to celebrities with Parkinson's. And um, we've been fortunate to receive the support of some really well-known editors in Hollywood that are going to support us and help us get this word out. So the end game is going to be a probably a five-part documentary that we hope to sell to a streaming service and then donate 100% of the proceeds to the Parkinson's Foundation. But our one of our biggest, um, our longest visits was in Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. With? A number of people. Um, there's a gentleman named David Zid and a lady named Jackie Russell that created a program years ago exercise-specific program, evidence-based, and it was called Delay the Disease. And they're really sort of on the forefront of exercise and Parkinson's and remain so. And they sold it out, their system to a hospital system, have reinvented themselves, and today they're called Total Health Works. They're nearby where we are right now. They're in Grandview, and they're known throughout the nation. So when I lived in Columbus, I always said, if you had to have Parkinson's disease, Columbus, Ohio's not such a bad place to be because... There are a number of people with a high level of expertise related to Parkinson's disease. And yet I have to call you out because you left. I did, but my work continues on and I always will be a Buckeye regardless um, of where I reside. And Dan, you amongst others say, Scott, why did you go to South Carolina? For me, cycling is the greatest form of exercise I can do with Parkinson's. And sure, I can indoor cycle in, in Columbus, Ohio. But there's a lot of months that it's not so pleasant to cycle outside, and I can do that year-round in South Carolina. And not only the weather. I mean, I'm glad you brought cycling up. You know, we've done a, a better job creating some bike paths, and you know, the metro parks have opportunities. But it's a constant struggle. It seems like there are closures without notice. Um, it's a city that is on the cusp. I mean, we're really like poised to do great things with our outdoors, with the physical environment for things like biking, mm-hmm. but we just kind of can't get there really. So when, when you think about the importance of that physical environment, also for people who uh, you know have uh, diseases like Parkinson's, just the difference it could make in their lives. And I, I don't hear that as part of the conversation. I hear about, you know, how nice it'd be to drive to work, to, to ride a bike to work. And it would be, but we also just need to think about whether people can be healthy in their community. And it sounds like you found that where you're living in South Carolina, even though the physicians you want to be seeing are here in Ohio. Yeah, I would say I've discovered a couple of things in South Carolina. And um, one is sunshine. And um, Parkinson's, as I mentioned earlier, often um, causes people to have depression. And we know that light, sunshine is really a good feeling for the body. 
And so to not have as many gloomy days as I had in Columbus, Ohio, and that's not a knock in Columbus because I was born and raised here and will always love it. It's important to me. And um, the warmth, I think, is easier for my joints. Yeah. And, you know, Parkinson's causes stiffness. So there's a whole lot of pluses. But I, I want to make it clear, I, I miss many, many people from Columbus. But, man, it is gloomy today on the day you're here. Yes. It is a gray, gray day. So I'm sorry we couldn't bring you the sunshine. That's but it's okay. nice to have you here and welcome home. Thank you. There's sunshine right here in the studio. So it's a pleasure to be with you. And thank you. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Likewise. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Don't forget to check out our show notes, which helps you follow up on a lot of the issues we talk about in today's conversation. To do that, and also to check out an archive of past episodes, including episodes that are nice counterparts to today's conversation, visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCB Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch with us if you have ideas for guests, topics, or ways we can improve the show. 